Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I hope you're having a great day, and I'm very pleased to have a real-life military veteran on the line with me. He's Brian Lamar. He's a public relations practitioner, a journalist, food writer, and military veteran. That's a pretty darn cool resume. Brian, welcome. Uh, Hi, thanks, Marshall. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I always say this. I I couldn't do what I do without the sacrifices made by veterans, of course, so I'm definitely appreciative. Let's just go ahead and get started with your military career. What made you want to join up right after high school? Well, you know, I grew up in North Alabama, and uh, although they're uh, in the the northwest region of Alabama, and uh, there were a lot of opportunities. Uh, There's several colleges there, things like that. It's just that... uh, at that point in time, all these opportunities uh, were, were, were there for me, and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, one day I was, um, I, was, I, was, I was working at a, at a, a local department store and was mopping the floors, and one of the Army recruiters came up and said, hey, have you, have you thought about the Army? And I, I kind of laughed and said, well, actually, no, I haven't. And uh, so I went and, uh, and checked out all the, the jobs that the Army had and, I guess I was woefully uh, ill-prepared or uneducated about the Army, and uh, and I just thought everybody went and learned how to shoot rifles, things like that, and, you know, got in fights. But, uh, but that actually wasn't necessarily the case. There's lots of uh, jobs uh, that, that, that you can embark on uh, joining the Army that, that you'd have a great career with. And, and I went, and... Um, they offered, uh, uh, at the time it was called photojournalist, and na- now it's called public affairs specialist, just, uh, just a broad range of things that we do. But uh, they, uh, they offered it to me. I made it through basic training and everything, and went off to, they sent me off to journalism school, and it's been, it's been wonderful. So the Army sent you off to journalism school. Where would you go to journalism school? Well, it's a it's a Department of Defense funded uh, journalism school, uh, Army, Navy, and Marine and Air Force. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, personnel all go to this, and and also some uh, Department of Defense civilians as well, and uh, they all go. It's at Fort Meade, Maryland, and it's called the Defense Information School. And uh, there are some people that go there go through there to be videographers, some go to be photographers, some go gra- graphic artists. But my particular was photojournalism. What did you end up doing? I mean, that was, you signed up for photojournalism. What did you end up doing when you first got in? Well, I uh, went to basic training first, and everybody has to get through that first. <laughs> you go through and you learn how to be a soldier. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's, you know, you're, you're uh, uh, you might, might have heard the phrase that the Marines uh, use, you're a rifleman first. Well, the, well, you're a soldier first in the Army. And, um, and so we, you learn all the soldiering skills, and, and you learn your, your your new basic leadership skills, and then you go off to your school, and you basically learn your trade. So you're applying those leadership and, and soldiering skills that you've you've learned, uh, and the discipline and everything that you've learned to your um, to your job field, whatever it is. And mine just just happened to be photojournalism. So I, I left. Uh, journalism school and went to my first assignment at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where I went to work at the, uh, the Fort Jackson Public Affairs Office. Do you think you need to have your mind made up uh, before you join entering the Army exactly what you want to do, or do you think that's something you can find out later? Well, there are career counselors there that, that can help 
guide you. Uh, now, you're, you're going to take, a, if, you, if you're going to join the military, you're going to take an armed services vocational aptitude battery test. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's better known as the ASVAB. A lot of a lot of schools allow uh, students to uh, to take it at the at the school there, uh, but but some schools don't, and so you have to go take it down at the recruiting station. But um, so once you take that um, that test, it's not it's not a test to tell you how smart you are or how much you know, or whatever. It's it's a t- to test your aptitude for certain things. And that, and just to give you an example, there are some people that are better at spatial and mechanical reasoning than others, and so uh, their aptitude is more geared toward those types of trades. And if uh, and if you if you go to where your aptitudes are, I think you're going to be a happier camper when you get into your career. I would think so. I wish I'd have taken one of those in college. It might have helped me out an awful lot. Let <laughs> let me ask you this, because I mean. Uh, there's a lot of folks that are listening who might be thinking about a you know career in the military. Do you think this is a good time to join? Well, you know, when I joined, it was it was in 1998, and uh, let's see who, uh, yeah, Bill Clinton was was still the president, and there there wasn't a real like armed conflict, you know, the, the, a large contingency operation going on. There was there was little skirmishes here and there, so. Nobody was really thinking about war, but uh, not too long after I joined, um, you know, 9-11 happened, and, and we all knew that that was going to change our way of life. And I immediately heard people saying, oh, my kid's not going to join now. They'll be shipped off to some, you know, foreign place to go fight. And uh, and I, I, I'll be honest, as a, as a young troop, I thought, oh, no, what have I got myself into? Here we go. I'm about to have to go fight, and um, and that's yeah, I did. I uh, I deployed to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times, and um, and there was there was not some uh, well, there were some there were some fun times. There were some good times. There were some very uh, life changing and life forming times that uh, that that occurred while I was there. But then there were some also uh, some some times where you know just downright um, I didn't I didn't like it at all. I was <laughs> going going thirty days without a shower. They say things like that build character, and I I don't know what kind of character that builds, but uh, I don't know if it it made me a better person for it. But I sure do appreciate showers now, though. You're you're like after about twenty five days, you're like I got plenty of character. I don't want any more character. <laughs> For me, I'm I'm kind of a little bit of a, a pansy when it comes to that re, uh, that area. So about after three days, I feel like I've got enough ca- character for a lifetime. You know, as a cartoonist, one of my heroes was Bill Malden, who was the cartoonist during World War II. And of course, I know he actually got in a lot of trouble with Patton with some of his cartoons. What's the job <laughs> of being a military photojournalist like? I could imagine you could really um, get some interesting things to shoot. Yeah, so... With a uh, camera, not a gun. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny when we, when uh, as a as a public affairs specialist that's, uh, that's also an active duty service member, when we go downrange uh, to what we call the sandbox, um, uh, that's what we've called it for the last 15 years. Um, if it's not the jungle, it's the sandbox, right? But uh, so uh, we will carry... Uh, you know, a accoutrement of different lenses and camera bodies and flashes and things like that, all the things that we would need to 
capture what's going on around us. Um, and then also because, like I said before, we're a soldier first, you know, we'll, we'll bring the, the ammunition and, and weapons that we need to protect ourselves as well. So we're a fully sustainable uh, soldier in the field, but we're also there capturing the story of the U.S. Army or whatever service you, you happen to be in um, to, to, at, that, at that time. So you carry the camera and a gun. What's the overall message that you'd like to – I mean, you're talking about telling the story of the Army. I was just trying to think, what what's the overall story that you're trying to tell out there? I, you know, actually, uh, it depends on what your mission is and where you are, things like that. There, there are multiple things that uh, – and it, it's such a large organization. And there's so many things going on. I'd, I'd say that probably the most permeating theme – that uh, you know, in whether I was in Africa, Afghanistan, or, or Iraq, or wherever, was uh, that the the U.S. Army was there as a professional fighting force and a job to do, and in, especially in the case of uh, Afghanistan, one of the um, one of the the most enduring themes that I remember, one of the most enduring messages that I remember was that we were we were um, continuing to stay in Afghanistan from at the behest of the Afghanistan government. They were still requesting that we stay there to help stabilize their region and, and keep their people free. I mean, they had gone through 30 years, maybe more, of not even having a, a proper educational system because of the rulers that were in place when we got there. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I went back almost almost every other year from 2000. I was there early 2002, and then I went back almost every other year from there, and I got to see how the mission grew, and um, we took control of more of the parts of the country, especially in 2006. That's when we expanded NATO's um, reach, throughout all of the different regions of Afghanistan, and you started seeing things. I mean, I remember being, uh, and, and it'll bring tears to my eyes just thinking about it too long, but uh, I remember standing in a village that had never had electricity. Um, any of the villagers that were there had never had, like, you know, running regular electrical grid. And we, we were in this village, and they powered up some street lights. And everybody, I remember everybody came out and looked at them like they were just the, it, it was like it was science fiction. And we started building hydroelectric dams and solar farms and, and wind turbine farms and things like that, trying to give them renewable energy. And it just, it was amazing seeing these people. And that's just some of the big infrastructure stuff. Some of the smaller things of, um, allowing the, the nonprofit organizations and non-government organizations to go in and teach um, good business practices to the Afghan people. Um, yeah, that was, that was the, I think, probably the thing that I liked the most about it, knowing that we were keeping the region at least secure enough for those types of things to, to be able to take place. And people got a better professional education so they could build businesses and, and, and make their own way in life. 
You know, it's amazing because we've been in we've been at war over there for nearly 15 years or maybe a little bit over that. And a lot of people just don't really know much about Afghanistan. And it was almost like you got landed on the on on the moon, you know, and you're going back in time because you see some of the pictures. It's so desolate and so isolated and, and so so just sparse. Well, I've traveled all over the world and, and there are um uh, there are very many beautiful places I've seen from the Alps and, and, uh, and the, uh, the French Alps and the, and the German Alps and, and, uh, and Austrian Alps. Some of the most beautiful places you ever see. Just beautiful mountains and green fields rolling as far as you can see. But then um, people don't expect it, but uh, up in the northeast corner of Afghanistan, I would say that that was the most beautiful uh, part of the world I've ever seen is it was called Faizabad, the town that was in there. It's um, Badakhshan province, and um, it's kind of geographically separated from the rest of the country because of the mountain ranges, things like that. It's hard to get in and out of, but uh, man, it, it was like the Garden of Eden. It was beautiful. Oh wow! And, uh, you know, even when we were down south, uh, there were there were places in like the Kandahar area where there were large uh, pomegranate orchards and things like that, and you just don't expect that type of things. And the best pomegranate I've ever had in my life was from Kandahar, Afghanistan. <laughs> I could imagine. Gosh, it's fresh, too. That'd be great. We're talking with Brian Lamar. He's a public relations practitioner, journalist, food writer, and military veteran on this Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day, everybody. Brian, I tell you, you've got a lot of great stories and a very realistic one about being a private in the Army and not being able to afford expensive dinners like some of the higher-ranked soldiers. Is that kind of what drove you to becoming a food writer? <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, I was a, a poor private in the Army when I first started out, and uh, and that, my friends would go out to eat, and, and a lot of my, my friends were civilians that lived out in the, in the community, and and they would all go out and they'd have a nice meal, and I would do it every so often. But uh, the, the weeks that I couldn't do it, we'd pick a place each week, usually a Friday or Saturday night. The weeks that I couldn't do it, I'd get so jealous, and I'd be sitting in my barracks room and just upset because I didn't make enough money just to go out every week because it, you know, it racks up a huge bill for food. Right. <laughs> you have to eat all the time. And so I came up with a plan, and this has kind of always been me. Um, some people would say, uh, like my, my my childhood best friend's mom, she would say that I was the living embodiment of Eddie Haskell, but uh, I always had a plan. I always had a scheme, and, um, and I never want to take advantage of anybody, but I want to take advantage of the situation. So what I did was I found a small independent paper. Unfortunately, that paper no longer exists. It's changed hands so many times. But uh, I went and um, I, I talked to the journal, uh, the editor of the paper, and I told her, I said, hey, I noticed you don't have a food column in your paper, and those tend to be pretty popular and well-read. And she said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to have one. And I said, okay, well, uh, I'm, I'm a food writer. <laughs> so I wasn't really a food writer. I was a foodie, and I... Uh, and I, I wrote, I was a trained journalist, but I'd, I'd never really been a, a food writer per se. So a little bit of a fib, uh, not, <laughs> not a 100% of a lie. But uh, so, but anyways, I said, if you just give me a, a letter saying that that's what I'm going to provide you as food articles, I'll go to restaurants and convince them to let me review their restaurants. And so that's how I got started. And so each week I would pick a different place. I would talk with the owner. The owner would be ecstatic because he got free press, um, and I would be happy because 
I would get to go sample their menu, and my friends would be happy because they could come along, and everybody was happy. It was a kind of a win-win-win situation for everyone. You, so you, that's you, how I got started. Yeah, you sound like the classic sergeant from the movies that figures out how to get everything from the from the parts depot. You know, that's pretty <laughs> pretty awesome. Talk about writing food. Army training must be picking up then. Exactly, exactly. See, it, it all paid off in the end. And um, how did you, I mean, you know, food writing's, I guess an art form. How did you figure up, you know, figure out how to get the right terms in there and make it sound really official? Well, okay, so you know, and even today, I've been doing it for 18 years now. That was just the beginning, uh, but I've, I've written for publications all over the country now. But um, uh, but uh, currently, uh, South Mississippi Living and uh, Eat Drink Mississippi are a couple of magazines that I, I provide for. Ah, but. So- um, so, so next time I'm I, on the uh, so the next time I'm on the coast, you're going to take me out to dinner, right? Because you can get absolutely. in anywhere. Yeah, you call me up and, <laughs> and I, you tell me what you're you're looking for, and I can probably get you to the one of the best uh, restaurants uh, in in that genre. That's awesome. That is absolutely. But, uh, awesome. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, it, it is an art form, uh, but how I do it a little bit differently than than a lot of uh, my my counterparts. Um, is I like to set the scene. Um, a lot of people will just go right into the food, you know, right into the, right in, this is the food, and this is how it tastes, and this is, you know, this is how it was prepared and, and things like that. But what I like to do is talk about the, the ambiance of the place and talk about the, the people behind the scene. And I tell you, one of my favorite uh, articles I wrote was about a, a, a place in, in Monterey, California called China House. And you would have thought it was just a regular old Chinese restaurant, run of the mill, but uh, I got to know the people. And they were from the Sichuan province of China, and they were about to, to go out of business. And um, when they go out of business, they were planning to actually uh, immigrate back to China, and, uh, and they didn't want to. So I said, well, well, tell me something that you think people would like to read about, people would like to hear about. What is it that you draw people in? And they say, well, <laughs> the problem is, is our best food is traditional Chinese food. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? And they said, well, a lot of Americans don't like old school traditional Chinese food. And I said, well, okay, well, let's, let's discuss it. And it was a fish soup. And I, I had no idea, but there's a certain way to eat this fish soup uh, in Szechuan style, I mean, it, 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 it's very, it's very tense. So you get a little bit of rice on your fork, you get a little bit of the uh, the vegetables on your fork, and then you get the spicy fish on your fork, and you eat it uh, all in a in a layered fashion on the fork, just like that. So the rice uh, puts a milky substance in your mouth first uh, as you're chewing it, so it coats your mouth, so you can take the intense heat of the fish. But you get the flavors and everything like that, and the um, and the vegetables act kind of like a buffer between the two, and it is the best tasting thing I've ever had, <laughs> and I would have never ordered a fish soup. So uh, probably a few months later, I came back to this restaurant, that 72 seater restaurant right there on the uh, on the coast, and it was beautiful, had a great location. Uh, it was empty when I went in there to review it because nobody knew about it, nobody understood the the awesomeness of this restaurant. I came back a few months later, and it was packed. Oh, awesome. I had to wait in line. And the family not only didn't have to leave what they love to do, 
but they were also given a grant to start a cooking school for troubled teens in Salinas, California. And I don't know if the school's still going on, but uh, it, it it was a catalyst for change. And so I love the fact that I'm able to take um, not just the how the food tastes, how it's prepared. I talk about all that, but I like to talk about the people, the, the stuff behind the food, because I think that's the real important conversation. We're going to take a quick break right now. We're with Brian Lamar. He's a public relations practitioner, journalist, food writer, and military veteran. We're talking a little bit about his journey in life. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Got Brian Lamar with us. He's a public relations practitioner, journalist, food writer, and military veteran. Um, not only military veteran in the U.S. Army, but also with the British Army. Uh, that had to be a fascinating three years of your life. Yeah, it was very fascinating. Uh, I got asked, uh, I was I was thinking about getting out of the, the military and just being a full-time journalist at a paper or something like that, but uh, I didn't really make a good plan to transition out of the Army uh, early on in my career. So uh, I went to the reenlistment guy and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested. Tell me what you got. And he looked and he, he offered me several assignments that just didn't look really uh, appeasing to me. I just It was kind of the same old stuff I'd already done. And I was looking for a new adventure. And I told him that. And when I told him that, he said, hold on a second. I saw an email on something. He, he goes back through his emails and he said, do you know anything about the British? <laughs> and I started laughing. I said, what I know from the history textbooks, maybe. I said, but uh, not so much, uh, you know, any practical knowledge, uh, you know, of them today. And then he started laughing. He said, well, he was, there's an assignment here where you can go and work directly with the British Army for three years. And I said, uh, that sounds cool. Where is it at? And he said it was a multinational unit. It was a NATO unit in Germany. So I would be on a British base in Germany. And um, and so I, I took the assignment. And so for three years, I was, um, other than wearing the, the U.S. Army outfit, everything else was British. I ate at the British chow halls. I... I ate in, uh, or I lived in um, the British housing um, that they had on base. Uh, I, I shot a British rifle. I was assigned a British rifle, uh, SA-80 at the time. Very hard rifle to, to clean and take apart, things like that. Nothing like the M16. It's <laughs> so, so much harder. But uh, and, and I went I went through training, and then I eventually deployed back to Afghanistan, um, and that was when I went in 2006 with the British. Let me ask you this. What's the difference between the British Army and the U.S. Army? I mean, obviously, you were a different rifle. I'm sure the food was incredibly different. Well, um, a lot of their attitudes for things like political correctness and things like that are very relaxed compared to ours. Um, I don't want to say that they are... Um, 
vulgar, but there was a little bit more crassness to the average uh, British soldier uh, that 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 you didn't find uh, in a lot of the the U.S. Army, just because we had consequences for saying certain things. Uh, we still do, uh, but their their consequences weren't as stringent. So you, you heard a lot of extra language that you didn't hear in the U.S. Army. <laughs> oh wow. I can I can imagine that was a little bit of a shock the first time that happened. Well, I, I don't know. I, I guess it was. I just kind of just kind of brushed it off, but uh, but it, it's just their way of speaking to each other, stuff like that. But um, but one of the things that kind of kind of was brought home to me, um, I didn't know this about the British Army. Uh, you know, growing up in the U.S., you, you get this idea that, you know, the U.S. is the best at everything. And um, and I would I would say that the British soldier, pound for pound, is, is just as apt and capable of a fighting member as a, as a U.S. soldier. So uh, I'd say you, you put a, a British soldier one-on-one up against a U.S. soldier, and it's going to be a good fight every time. Yeah, it, probably the only time that didn't work out was maybe the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, but I'm sure you didn't bring that up. <laughs> I brought up the War of 1812 every chance I could get because, you know, there's the song, and so I would play it in my office all the time. Yeah, I'm sure they're probably like, hey, too soon, man, too soon. We can't we can't be talking about that. Now, this is, this is the one job you had that I would always – I'd like to do this sometime. I think it would be a lot of fun, but I'd have to probably take a truckload of Dramamine before I did it. But you were the media escort with the Hurricane Hunters. What was that like? Because you were riding on the C-130 with them into the Hurricanes, weren't you? Well, I, I took a boring desk job at the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center in Monterey only because it was in Monterey. So I wanted to feel like I was on a permanent vacation. But uh, after a while, that got so boring that I couldn't take it anymore. And so I was offered a job to work with the Hurricane Hunters, and uh, and that's what brought me to South Mississippi back in 2012. And uh, in in 2012, uh, we, they were uh, currently filming a show with the Weather Channel called um, Hurricane Hunters, and they were in their second season. It was my job to take that TV crew and any other journalists that wanted to brave it uh, up into the storms. And uh, one of my first storms was actually my worst. It's kind of funny that that worked out that way. Uh, I'm glad it didn't scare me off, but it sure did scare me. I had me questioning my uh, my job choice. But we flew, uh, it was was around midnight. Um, It was stormy, of course, because it's a hurricane. And we were flying into uh, uh, right outside the Bermuda Triangle, or actually was inside the Bermuda Triangle. And as a kid, I was scared to death of the Bermuda Triangle because it was it used to be a much bigger thing than it is now. But um so we flew into Hurricane Raphael and we ended up uh, an engine kinda started giving us trouble and we got struck by lightning a couple of times and our communications were going out and things like that and we fly right smack into a funnel cloud. Now, they're, they're not regular tornadoes. They're, they're much larger, uh, the swirling vortexes. Uh, they're called mesocyclones. It's just like an airborne tornado inside the eye wall of a hurricane. And, boy, it threw us like we were a rag doll. 
And that was that was my it wasn't my introduction to the hurricanes, um, flying through the hurricanes, but it was one of the early on ones. And after that, uh, I was very, very more respectful of the missions that we went on. Now you realize not only the airplane's tough, but the crew's tough as well, correct? Yeah, uh, the the pilot at the time, he's a, he's a local guy. He grew up in Covington, Louisiana, but he lives in D'Iberville, Mississippi now. His name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Boudreau. And a very cajun accent everything. And I remember I remember one thing that uh, that he said. Uh, we had stalled out, and we were falling uh, out of the sky. And, you know, we were only, I don't know, about uh, nine or 10,000 feet in the air. And we were falling out of the sky. We were falling fast, too. And um, I remember him saying he's going to put the nose down um, toward the ocean so he could sacrifice... Uh, some altitude for some airspeed, and here I am, not being a pilot, just a you know a passenger on these flights. I'm thinking, wow, that just doesn't seem right. And we're we're aiming toward the ocean right now, so I was thinking this is it. But uh, he he did exactly as his training said, and, and those guys are are impeccably trained. And yeah. so he he flew out of there and got us safe and uh, safe and sound. And we, uh, we all landed on the ground and said, let's go find a beer. <laughs> exactly. You did the Pope thing where you dropped to the ground and kissed it. You're like, okay, I'm glad to be back. So so now... The, uh, the, the director for the crew for the Hurricane Hunters television show, he actually did kiss the uh kiss the ground when we got off the flight. <laughs> I bet. I bet now if my memory serves me correct there's a couple of the flight crew that are actually um meteorologists for the weather channel aren't they there there used to be I think anyway. Well, I mean they they have different uh careers uh, throughout us. A lot of the uh, crews with the hurricane hunters uh are they're active members. They're there, you know, every day of the week. Right. Uh, but uh, but there's ten crews that are actually part time. They're tradi- traditional reservists, so they're only called in when needed. And so they have regular jobs. Some of them fly drug interdiction for the DEA or Border Control. Some mm-hmm. of them uh, fly for FedEx. Uh, some of them are TSA folks. And, and uh, and so yeah, they have they have jobs all over. And so they'll come in and uh, and train with us. And then fly when needed. You've um you've you've kind of transitioned over now. You're the assistant public affairs officer for the Naval Construction Battalion Center in Gulfport. That's a pretty long business card, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a it's a long name. Uh, the shortened version uh, of that name for uh, for everybody that that knows us is CB based. Exactly. You're the CB uh, storyteller. <laughs> Yeah, the construction battalion is uh, is where um, well there, there there's two main missions of the base. Uh, one one mission is for uh, training new uh, generations of CBs to to learn builder skills or steel worker skills, and, and then they go off into the forest and they 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 build things. You know, whenever the whenever whenever the army goes to a new place and it needs a uh, a new base or new latrines or a new building or something like that, it's usually the CBs that are there with them uh, building the things so, so they can they can sustain operations. And they're very important to the entire Department of Defense. So I'm, I'm glad that I get a chance to serve alongside these guys. 
the Seabees have got a very storied history. I know in World War II in the Pacific, they were coming in under fire with bulldozers building runways on coral atolls. I mean, they were pretty amazing. So, I mean, they still continue that kind of work today, too, don't they? Oh, yeah, they're all over the world. And, and so that's the second mission of the base. The second mission of the base is you know, there's, there's several battalions of Seabees uh, on the base, and they deploy all over the world to do these missions. A lot of it is humanitarian aid-type missions. A lot of it is, uh, is uh, combat uh, support. Um, a, lot, a lot of what we're doing right now is humanitarian aid-type missions and things like that. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more. Now you're talking after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Got Brian Lamar with us. He's a public relations practitioner, journalist, food writer, and military veteran. And of course, in your spare time, you're working on a travel narrative book, too. You're, you're like, when you're not getting a free meal, you're like out there working. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I've, I've kind of put that book on the back burner a little bit. Uh, I started it off as a blog, and um, I, would, uh, I would jump on a bus. I'm not going to name the company because uh, I'm, I'm not very favorable of the company in the book, but uh, uh, I would jump on a bus and I would, I would leave Biloxi, Mississippi, and, uh, and go somewhere. And uh, in the first part of this book, I, I left Biloxi, Mississippi, and I rode for three days straight to the West Coast. And, boy, it's, it's a tough ride. <laughs> and there is, a, there is a type of person... Uh, a grit, uh, just true American grit that you find in a lot of these people that are riding this bus for three days. And I met a, a mom, a single mom, who was, well, she was running away from an abusive relationship uh, from Augusta, Georgia, and she was going to uh, Santa Barbara, California, so coast to coast. And uh, and she basically just had about 100 bucks in her pocket after she bought the plane tickets. And she was, or the bus tickets, and she was trying to make it to uh, family on the West Coast and 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 keep keep her daughter safe. And that was one story. And there was there was um, there was other stories where a lady, uh, I guess her visa had expired while she was on the bus, and we got stopped by um, uh, the border patrol, and they they dragged her off the bus. And it was it was very gut wrenching to see her. She didn't want to go. She was trying to make it to her husband, and so many stories on this on this ride. Uh, oh, people wow. getting inside and things, doing other things they're not supposed to be on the bus as well. And and I felt like I was just immersed in this story. It's a it's a conversation that America just doesn't get to have because you know if you've got the money. You usually go and get on an airplane if you're going to cross the country and you cross the plane. Right. Or cross, cross in a plane. Or um, if you're doing like a family vacation and you got a lot of time, you'll do a road trip across in an RV or a, a car or something. But uh, not a lot of people use the bus as their first 
choice for the transportation across the country. Uh, and and, and the reason, I think the biggest reason why is the, is the comfort and the sanitation. The buses get a little dirty and smelly after a few days. I could imagine <laughs> and, uh, being crammed in like a sardine. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of the things that I noticed about the comfort of it is at no point, unless I was standing, was I straight. I was always sitting. I was always bent in some way. And you're not allowed to sleep at any of the bus stops, no matter no matter how long you've been riding. If they catch you sleeping in a bus stop, they'll wake you up. And I don't know the reasons for that. I never did figure out the reasons for that. I got several uh, explanations, but uh, never never really a an enduring reason. But uh, yeah, it was it was a rough trip, and I plan to do more. <laughs> you're glutton for punishment, to say the least. And well, who knows, maybe. Oh, go ahead. I want to keep, uh, I, I want to keep uh, riding this uh, this bus. I, w- I want to make sure that I'm, I'm going in different parts of the country as well. So I, I did a, an Indianapolis to uh, Mobile, Alabama leg, and that was, uh, that was a lot less eventful. There were still some really cool things that happened. Uh, but uh, I want to do uh, the Eastern Seaboard next, and then possibly the... Um, the Atlanta to Chicago through Nashville route, because I'm told that that is the, the craziest one. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Somebody already's ranked them out there. Well, that that's that's good to know, to say the least. Brian, look, I appreciate you taking the time out today to talk to us, and happy Veterans Day. I hope you have a great day today. Thank you very much, Marshall. I, I appreciate talking with you. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in today. I want to thank Brian Lamar, and I want to thank Sharita for producing the show. And, of course, tune in next week for more Now You're Talking. Up next is Southern Remedy. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. 